Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another live edition of Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, the nation's death toll from the coronavirus is now more than 170,000 lives. The pandemic continues to upend lives, livelihoods, health care policies, and practices. The Senate last Thursday left for its summer recess without reaching an agreement on the fifth coronavirus relief package. Senators return in September. Members of the House return on August 14th. Meanwhile, many schools are reopening with online and in-person classes, and the Big Ten and the Pac-12 conferences are postponing their football seasons. We have much news to report this morning. Former CMS official Matthew Albright has the Monitor Monday legislative update. Healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. Nicole Emanuel has a Monitor Monday rack report. Alan Fink-Sandwick reports on the latest news concerning the social determinants of health. And Mary Inman is standing by to report our lead story, a $24 million settlement against a major pharmaceutical. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Well, good morning, all. Last week, uh, online medical site MedPage Today published an article entitled, Is the Medicare Inpatient-Only List History? And to tell you the truth, the title was the only thing that was correct. In this article, they interviewed surgeons and got their opinions, and boy, did they get it wrong. Starting with, the author quoted the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, which said that this would increase the burden on physicians to appeal health care denials. What? This applies to Medicare patients, so what does it have to do with health plan denials? And really, honestly, how many orthopedists actually participate in bills for improper status anyways? The article then said orthopedists are worried that the rule would pave the way for health plans to use less expensive surgical settings as the default sites for such procedures and require lengthy lengthy appeals and prior authorization paperwork to override these defaults. Once again, this is Medicare, and the health plans are already pushing for surgery to be done in lower-cost settings and already requiring prior authorization. So eliminating this list won't change that. Then it goes on to confuse things more, quoting a surgeon who said that a concern is the high level of complexity and risk in many of the procedures CMS thinks could be safely done in an outpatient setting. The surgeon said that given today's surgical tools and skills, some surgeries are just too dangerous for an outpatient setting. Well, what does that mean? Does this surgeon do a surgery differently if the patient is an outpatient and not inpatient? Do they use X-Acto knives and kitchen scissors they bought at Target instead of surgical instruments that are sterilized for outpatients? Do they buy their implants at Home Depot and Radio Shack? I just don't get it. Now, I know many of you don't comment to CMS on these rules, but if you want a topic that's worthy of comment, I'll give it to you. CMS is continuing to add surgeries to the ambulatory surgery center list. That's different than the inpatient only list, of course. And if a Medicare patient who does not have a supplement has a surgery at an ASC, they must pay 20% of the approved charge. And unlike in the hospital, there's no cap on that amount. 
So for 2020, right now, there are 125 approved surgeries where the patient would owe more to have it done in an ASC than at a hospital. I am asking CMS to, the requi to require the surgeon to notify the patient verbally and in writing, similar to our hospital notices, that they will owe more money and they have the patient have the option to ask for the surgery to be done at the hospital. So please join me and submit that comment. Now, one last thing. Last week, I talked about billing G0463 for audiovisual visits when the doctor's in the office and the patient is at their home. Well, on Tuesday's call, CMS said the same applies to telephone call codes. If the physician's in their office and makes a call and the patient's registered as an outpatient, the facility can bill G0463. If the doctor is elsewhere, then it's Q3014. These CMS clarifications really are the gift that keeps on giving, but we only wish that the wrapping paper was not so hard to open. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday's RAC Report is healthcare attorney, Nicole Emanuel, and good morning, Nicole. Hello, everyone, and happy RAC Monitor Monday. Since the beginning of the COVID public health emergency, or PHE, the Trump administration and CMS has issued an unprecedented array of temporary regulatory waivers and new rules to equip us with maximum flexibility to respond to the pandemic. In case you missed it, Matthew did an amazing segment on all the executive orders or EOs by President Trump last Monday, if you're interested. Well, many of these executive orders apply to SNFs or skilled nursing facilities. I hate to continue to beat my same drum. I certainly hate repeats as much as the next person. But when PAC ends or is expired, all these COVID flexibilities that are so great right now and allowing you to do your jobs and concentrate on patient welfare will expect the RAC and MAC auditors to see the rescission of the COVID flexibilities as low-hanging fruit and will move in like a shark. Quick ode to Shark Week for my nature lovers. Look to CMS for guidance for these rescissions. The internet actually has never been as valuable as it is right now since COVID. Computer and iPad sales have soared along with sales of pools, which I am now looking into. CMS is required by law to maintain inventory of all the state and federal Medicare and Medicaid exceptions, state by state, state and on the national level. It's actually in real time or as close to it as possible. The internet, for all its shortcomings, has allowed CMS to real-time give you basically an Encyclopedia Britannica at your fingertips, but an updated version, not the one you had in the 70s. You're concerned about upcoming DME MAC audits, as you should be, since CMS has explicitly stated that uh, DME will be the first provider types to resume RAC and MAC audits. Google has become your sort of quasi-attorney on the side. CMS has electronic handouts for SNFs, for DMEs, for oncology, etc. on its website that spells out all the exceptions for your particular service type. The one which I looked at today for my segment was for SNFs and all its COVID exceptions. Now remember, these are just summaries. They're not a replacement for an attorney, but it's certainly a good start. Whenever you do find your service type and all the exceptions due to COVID, your research is still not complete. 
Next, you need to Google your own state's COVID executive orders and Medicaid exceptions for your state. I personally use Westlaw instead because I feel like the features are much better on Google. But before you have to run to an attorney, let's try to use the Google first. For SNF, some of the most important exceptions are the following. The three main exceptions, at least in my view, was the three-day hospitalization exception, the accelerated payments or advanced payments for cash flow, and the Medicare appeals and fee-for-service, Medicare Advantage, and Part D. Now, I'm going to go into much more depth on my live, in my live webinar on September 29th as to the SNF exceptions and details. But you'll have to wait until September 29th for that. For now, just know that there are a lot of exceptions. We need to be very detail-oriented in this new age, and we need to be very careful, make sure we know the exceptions, and make sure we know those rescission dates. And I will try to keep you up to date as much as possible. Thanks. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the law firm of practice. And coming up at about nine and a half minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Alan Fink-Samnick, Matthew Albright, and famed whistleblower Mary Inman, who's standing by to report our lead story. This is Monday. It's August 17, 2020, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Buried in the thousands of pages of the 2021 IPPS final rule are details that are critical to your organization's financial health. Register now for a three-part series on the many changes to the ICD-10 CMPCS code sets and updates to guidelines, designations, and methodology. With so much to digest, you'll appreciate the guidance, instruction, and insights provided by nationally renowned ICD-10 coding expert Lori Johnson during this upcoming webcast series. Count on Lori to help you master crucial details in the final rule, including new concepts, codes, designations, and MSDRG changes. Make sure you and your team are ready and confident on October 1st. Register now to attend 2021 IPPS Final Rule Webcast Series, Three Programs to Improve Your Performance. Part 1 begins Tuesday, September 15th. Register now. And a programming note, CMS has yet to release the 2021 IPPS rule, and that means this important three-part webcast has been rescheduled to start Tuesday, September the 15th. You now have more time to register, but precious little time to prepare since the rule becomes effective October 1st, so be sure to register. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, as I say every Monday, what could possibly be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, it would be the risk that Mary Inman pays you a visit professionally rather than socially. And people often do wonder, what can I do to prevent a whistleblower claim? Now, if you're viewing prevention as completely avoiding any risk, the answer is nothing. But if you're thinking about prevention in the context of risk management, there's a very easy step that that you can take that will significantly lower the probability your organization will face any sort of credible allegation of intentional, long-standing non-compliance. Now, at the risk of offending Nicole, this is a bit of a repeat, but so many organizations don't do this that I'm going to mention it. So at least annually, but better yet, semi-annually, or maybe even quarterly, you should distribute a form to every employee asking them either to certify that they're not aware of any issues that they believe might possibly constitute a compliance issue, or in the alternative, have them list any areas where they have the slightest compliance worries. 
the wording of the question is important. You want to frame the request to ensure it encourages people to disclose situations where they have any concern at all, and not merely those where they're confident of wrongdoing. When you send the form out, you're going to probably be inundated with a bunch of things that are not truly compliance concerns. People will vent about colleagues who take too much vacation or who are incompetent in their jobs. In my experience, HR complaints are going to dominate the response. The result is you'll have a ton of work to do separating wheat from chaff. You'll be chasing down a variety of leads, some of them legitimate and some of them, ironically, false claims, about false claims. But it's worth it because you will have done two things that are extremely powerful if you ever face a False Claims Act investigation. First, you'll have demonstrated a true attempt to be compliant. The level of effort that goes into this program, if done properly, is a near-perfect demonstration of an effective compliance program. I've been involved in more government investigations than I can count, and I can only think of one situation where the government attorney was dismissive of my client's compliance efforts. Even if the investigation finds wrongdoing, when the investigators believe that the organization is trying to do the right thing, the penalties are less draconian. Compliance plans don't always avoid penalties, but they do lower them. The second thing you've done is definitively defang individuals, and that's defang like take their fangs, not defame like slander them, but you've defanged individuals who falsely assert that they have raised compliance issues only to have them dismissed. I've seen a number of instances where whistleblowers use revisionist history and assert that they've been talking about a problem for years or even decades. The ability to place a form, or better yet, dozens of forms in front of the individual where they have failed to disclose this purported wrongdoing can provide a, a powerful reality check. Now, if you'd like a sample form, shoot me an email. Then use that form or one you've created yourself to make a habit of going to employees on a regular basis and singing some Whitney Houston. Now, I'm not going to try this, but I'm asking you what you know about these things. So, Chuck, how will you know if you get in trouble? And that I'm really not going to sing. I don't have the range. But you can't know if you're going to get in trouble, but you can make it less likely. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredericton and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink-Samnick. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey, and good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck, and good Monday, all. What a week it has been. The social determinants have been top news now for well over two years. But since the pandemic, they've been eclipsed by interwoven themes of health disparities, racial injustice, and massive public health gaps. The virus has torn through the world's poorest communities and ripped the Band-Aid off reactive and short-term efforts to address public health. As a result, the new hot topic is racism as a public health issue, with reports being published fast and furiously. The American Public Health Association lists 20 states and growing that have declared racism as a public health crisis. Here we go. 
California, Colorado, Connecticut, Georgia, Illinois, Indiana, Massachusetts, Maryland, Michigan, Minnesota, Missouri, Nevada, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Texas, Vermont, Washington State, and Wisconsin. Others are soon to follow. The implications, elevations in intimate partner violence and child abuse, up 75% in some regions. Maternal mortality rates for black women four times higher than whites. Life expectancy for blacks a minimum of four years less than the rest of the U.S. population. COVID-19 decimating communities with higher rates of poverty, numbers of residents with lower socioeconomic status, and higher rates of minorities overall, especially Blacks and Latinx. Over 75% of Latinx and 70% of Blacks experience income loss in metropolitan areas, close to 30% worried about food insufficiency, close to 60% worried about their inability to pay rent insufficient testing availability in public health sites. There is insufficient and inaccurate data that has the virus moving faster than the data needed to address it. Modernizing the antiquated public health infrastructure to properly address the health of communities mandates more than double the $500 million over 10 years approved by Congress in March to modernize the public health system. Many entities still relying on pen and paper to do the job. The U.S. Census Bureau's Health Household Pulse Survey has now tracked COVID-19's impact from April 23rd to present on key social determinants data by race and ethnicity across the states. Now, I've seen the majority of the data on this topic, but this information, especially on racial and ethnic disparities, was overwhelming, with as high as 80% of populations impacted by unemployment, expected income loss, food insufficiency, health insurance coverage, inability to pay mortgage and rent, and mental health challenges. The URLs for each of the reports I've cited will appear in my article in this week's RAC Monitor. Now, the American Public Health Association calls for swift allocation of resources and clearly defines strategic action. Medical experts are calling for more attention to preventative and community-based care. Even the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation have hopped on the bandwagon. The clock is ticking as more have-nots appear daily, needing far more resources than available. So, for this week's Monitor Monday survey, we ask our listeners a straightforward question. Do you view racism as a public health issue? Yes or no? We'll be back with the survey results at the end of the broadcast. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen. That was consultant and author, Alan McSamnick. And as Alan said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. Coming up next, Matthew Albright with our legislative update. The Monitor Monday legislative update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous. Zealous is a market-leading provider of claims, cost, and payment optimization solutions to price, pay, and explain healthcare claims. Here now is Matthew Albright. Chuck, talks have stalled between the White House, the Senate, and the House of Representatives on the next congressional COVID-19 package. And there is talk this morning that the president may sign more executive orders, as he did a Saturday ago, intended to provide financial help during the pandemic while we wait for Congress to decide on broader assistance. A few weeks ago, the Senate stepped out of the talks on the next package 
and left it to the House Democrats and the administration. But the House leadership and the White House have only met once on the package in the past week, and they are not expected to meet this week. It could be talks are stalled until September. In fact, by last week, lawmakers from both the House and the Senate had pretty much left town for the August recess and were expected to stay out of D.C. until September. However, this weekend, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi called the representatives back to town to discuss and likely vote on a bill about the recent post office issues. The proposed legislation would prohibit the U.S. Postal Service from implementing any changes to its operations until after the election. The House has also launched a number of COVID-19-related investigations in the past few weeks, including one that is looking into health and dental carriers' business practices, specifically their reimbursement for COVID-19 tests. The push for this investigation comes from the fact that many of the nation's top carriers reported high profits in the second quarter of 2020, some doubling what they made in Q2 of last year. That increase in profits was caused by money continuing to come into the carrier's coffers via insurance premiums, but significantly less money going out because of the decrease in elective medical procedures. Another House subcommittee has initiated investigation into Operation Warp Speed, the administration's program to develop and distribute COVID-19 vaccines and treatments. That investigation is concerned about how the vaccine nominees are chosen and potential conflicts of interest in that process. The House will ask HHS Secretary Alex Azar and other leaders of the program to testify. In other D.C. news, as we head into the new school year, the White House has released a document titled Schools Should Safely Reopen. The document echoes a similar announcement released by the CDC in July titled The Importance of Reopening America's Schools. While the White House document advocates for in-person education in the fall, it also cautions that physical distancing and good hygiene should be maintained and that schools should require students and teachers to self-assess their health every morning. According to reporting by MCH Data, only about half of the nation's school districts have come out with their back-to-school plans. 20% of those districts are going all remote, and an equal amount are going all in-person, while the largest category of approach, at 50%, are schools that will offer a hybrid of both remote and in-person, Only about 30% of all school districts are offering sports in the fall. And while it's back to school for our kids in some way or another, Chuck, it's back to the election season for the rest of us. The Democrats are starting their all-virtual convention this evening through to Thursday, and the Republican convention will be held next week, remotely from numerous locations, starting on Monday. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. Could a nurse in California blow the whistle on a giant pharmaceutical to the tune of $24 million? Mary Inman is standing by to report our lead story. This is Monitor Money. It's a broadcast service of Rack Monitor Standby. Why are there so many claim denials for surgical procedures? Often, healthcare organizations don't understand the various payers' unique rules and coverage policies. One payer may cover a surgical procedure under all circumstances, while another will cover the same procedure only if the patient meets certain criteria, or only if the procedure is performed in a specific setting. 
It's a serious issue, but here's the solution. Join Dr. Ronald Hirsch for his webcast, Surgery, Know the Rules for Status, Location, and Medical Necessity. Dr. Hirsch explains surgery status, medical necessity, and site-of-service rules using case examples and payer policy excerpts to reinforce key points. This important webcast is available on demand. Register now to download and save $40 when you enter the coupon code MONDAY at checkout. Up next, fame whistleblower attorney Mary Inman standing by with our lead story. This segment is brought to you by Trusted I-10, an Abio technology solutions company designed to solve one of healthcare's most significant challenges, E&M coding. California is one of the two states in the country that rewards whistleblowers for bringing forward information about private insurance fraud. Case in point, a recent $24 million settlement with a pharmaceutical giant over the marketing of the company's blockbuster drug, Humira. Here now reporting our lead story this morning is famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman, and good morning, Mary. Good morning to you, Chuck. The nation's biggest insurers, Medicare, Medicaid, and TRICARE, already incentivize whistleblowers to report fraud. Because those programs are federally funded, a whistleblower can bring suit under the False Claims Act and share in 15 to 30 percent of the recovery. The False Claims Act is a law that allows private individuals alleging fraud against the government to bring a lawsuit in the name of the United States. The law leads to about $3 billion of annual recoveries and certainly deters billions more in fraud. But what about fraud against private insurers? It's estimated that they are defrauded of over $60 billion annually, with other estimates in the range of $230 billion. That's a problem roughly the size of Portugal's economy and has negative consequences for all consumers, as those facing rising premium rates know. Two states, California and Illinois, have mimicked the False Claims Act and adopted laws that incentivize whistleblowers to come forward and report fraud against private insurance plans. California has a law called the California Insurance Fraud Prevention Act, which was enacted in 1989 and allows whistleblowers to sue for fraudulent actions like inflating the amount on claims or paying kickbacks to physicians. The California Department of Insurance can join the lawsuit, and the whistleblower reward ranges from 30 to 50 percent of the recovery. Illinois has a similar law, the Illinois Insurance Claims Fraud Prevention Act. A new settlement under the California Insurance Fraud Prevention Act demonstrates the effectiveness of the law. AbbVie, a pharmaceutical company, has agreed to pay the California Department of Insurance $24 million to resolve allegations regarding the marketing of one of its drugs, Humira, which is used to treat a variety of autoimmune diseases, including rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's disease. Specifically, the allegations center around AbbVie's use of quote-unquote ambassadors, registered nurses that counseled patients regarding Humira and were employed by AbbVie, not by medical providers. That fact went undisclosed to patients. The company also unlawfully allegedly provided valuable professional goods and services to doctors at no cost to induce them to prescribe Humira. In addition to the $24 million, AbbVie has also agreed to change certain marketing practices in California. They, these include ambassadors revealing that they are AbbVie employees and the company implementing a policy prohibiting Humira sales representatives from inviting prescribing physicians to off-site business meals, with some exceptions. The lawsuit was initiated by a whistleblower, a registered nurse who worked as an ambassador in Florida. The whistleblower will receive $9 million of the settlement 
A related False Claims Act lawsuit is ongoing in federal court in Chicago. California is not a party to that suit. This is not the first sizable settlement under the law. In 2015, pharmaceutical company Warner Chilcott agreed to pay $23.2 million to resolve allegations of drug marketing fraud by the California Department of Insurance. The whistleblowers in that case were former Warner Chilcott employees. They claim the company knowingly used illegal inducements to influence physician decisions, including paying kickbacks and falsifying prior authorization forms to increase the number of prescriptions written for several Warner Chilcott medications. That's it for me, Chuck. Back to you. Thanks, Mary. That was famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the law office of Constantine Cannon. Now's the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. Once again, here's Alan Finksamnick. Thank you, Chuck. This is such a complex topic, and our audience did not disappoint in their contribution to this discussion. Do you view racism as a public health issue? Record numbers completed today's survey. 59% of you said yes. Just about 41% of you said no. It will be so interesting to see what the ongoing state action is on this topic and whether further states continue to declare racism a public health crisis and emergency. We will continue to follow the story here. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen, very much. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday, and we thank you so very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink-Samnick, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and, of course, Mary Inman, who reported our lead story. Be sure to be with us next Monday. That's when we will report on the plight of 340B. Maureen Testoni, the CEO for 340B Health, will be our special guest. That's 340B next Monday. And remember, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us and give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Shelter in place. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.